0: Welcome to our special Friday Dispatch podcast that is actually taped on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. We have an interview with Senator Mitt Romney about his new bill on the minimum wage, tying it to E-Verify, and then we'll bring in all of the guys after to discuss the interview, what they think about the bill and what they think about Mitt Romney's take on the Republican Party. Romney, we so appreciate your time. I do want to let listeners know and let you know, for that matter, that I worked for both your 2008 and 2012 presidential bids, but I did not work on your Senate campaign. So for those keeping score, there's a high correlation of campaigns you win that I didn't work on. Given (laughs) that, (laughs) uh, let's jump into your announcement today. You've unveiled your new minimum wage bill with Senator Cotton that would gradually raise the minimum wage to $10, tie it to inflation moving forward, and mandate E-Verify from employers to ensure these companies are hiring legally authorized workers. I want to hear more about the specifics, but first, why now? Democrats control both houses of Congress and the presidency. Was it the time for a bill like this in 2019 or 2020?
1: Well, I think there's recognition uh, on, on both sides of the aisle that the minimum wage is probably going to go up. Uh, right now, the Democrats are talking about a $15 minimum wage, which which uh, the CBO has estimated will cost, uh, well, about 1.3 million jobs. And I think they underestimate what the impact will be on small businesses that frankly can't accommodate that kind of a leap from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour. So uh, our minimum wage bill uh, provides an increase, recognizing the minimum wage hasn't changed in 10 years, but it brings it up to $10 an hour over four years. And then after that, it links it with inflation. And uh, that, I think, is, is a change that can be accommodated by our small businesses. The CBO estimates that it will not cost jobs. Uh, and it instead helps uh, families that are facing some tough times, get a, getting a better, better job and better wage. But let me note this as well. We link this with permanent e-verify and mandatory e-verify, which means that employers will not be able to hire people that come here illegally. That's one of the things that's hurting our workforce.
0: So everything you're describing, mandating uh, e-verify, dictating wages... Talk to me about how this fits into traditional concepts of conservatism or your brand of conservatism.
1: Well, I mean, I happen to believe that conservative principles are are best for working people, whether those that are just entering the workforce or those that have been there a long time, whether at the low end or the very high end. Uh, We've been characterized as a party that only cares about the rich. I think that's pretty silly and wrong. In fact, our policies are best for working people and lower income people. And uh, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that if we're doing a job, a good job creating new jobs and seeing real growth, that we can have the, uh, the minimum wage in our country rise with inflation. We don't want to have it rise well above inflation or we're going to find job losses, uh, w- which is not what we want. But we believe that the best course to get people rising wages and good jobs is to have a, uh, a, a wage which is consistent with the growth and vitality of the economy. By the way, we don't make any changes in the minimum wage until the pandemic crisis is over.
0: Bernie Sanders announced that he would get a ruling from the parliamentarian in the Senate on raising the minimum wage with a simple majority vote for his $15 an hour plan, meaning that the Democrats would not need any Republicans to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and it would be without your E-Verify requirements. How do you plan to get Democrats to want to work with you on this bill? Would you consider uh, compromising on what you're raising it to? Would you drop the e-verify requirements? And just to phrase it a different way, is this a bill that could become a law, or is this like a think tank proposing ideas so that Republicans are on the record with a minimum wage policy?
1: Well, first, I don't think the parliamentarian is going to go along with Bernie Sanders. Uh, the uh, the rule, the bird rule, so to speak. Uh, uh, says that something cannot be part of reconciliation, if you will, the 50-vote vote, uh, vote uh, unless it is uh, focused upon the, the budget. And this is clearly a, a a provision that Bernie Sanders and others are promoting, which is uh, incidental to the budget and uh, not its main purpose. And and as a result of that, I think the parliamentarian will not proceed with the $15 rule if, if she allows it. Why, then that's what they're going to do. And that's unless one or two people, and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are probably two that come to mind, might say, no way, $15 is just nuts for our respective states, whether that's West Virginia or Arizona, and they insist on something less. I hope they also, both Joe and Kirsten, as, as well as other Democrats, look and say, hey, Republicans are willing to work with us on a minimum wage bill. We don't need to pass something without any Republican support. We don't need to go with Bernie's $15. We can go with something that's far more reasonable and less damaging to employment.
0: This latest policy legislative announcement comes on the heels of your splashy childcare policy rollout, widely touted as smart. It was important. I mean, it it sparked a great conversation in the country, or at least, you know, in Twitter. Uh, But at the same time, Congress seems entirely broken. The vast majority of governing is happening in the executive and the administrative agencies at this point. So if we want more legislative solutions coming from Congress, like the ones you've proposed, do we need to lower the threshold for legislation in the Senate by getting rid of the filibuster or in the House by encouraging ranked choice voting, multi-member districts? Or I guess my question is, why isn't the more urgent legislative proposal one that would make it more likely to get these other laws you've drafted or any laws passed by Congress?
1: Well, my own view is that if you got rid of the legislative filibuster, the so-called 60 vote rule, uh, if you eliminated that, why none of the things I'm proposing would ever become law? Uh, because the Democrats in that circumstance would have uh, an opportunity to pass everything they want solely based upon their one vote majority. Uh, and they'd have no need to sit down with Republicans and, and work out a better better piece of legislation. Look, I, I'm absolutely convinced that the best legislation that comes out of Washington is a legislation that's gone through the regular process where committees evaluate alternatives, where there's a vote in committee, then it goes to the floor, where there are debates, where whether there, when there is a, a compromise between the two parties, where one party is able to make an improvement in a piece of legislation. If instead you don't need both parties to work on something, then the most extreme point of view will be adopted By the respective parties, a a left wing idea will be adopted by Democrats when they're in charge and we'll have the same on the right when we're in charge and the nation will go from guardrail to guardrail in tax policy, health policy, education and the like. We really need to decide that we're going to work together collaboratively as Congress was intended to do.
0: I entirely agree with that. For anyone who's listened to this podcast, you're singing my song, but how do we do it?
1: Ah, well, that requires some <laughs> statesmanship on the part of leaders in both parties, and it requires the parliamentarian sticking to her guns. Uh, I believe she will, uh, and uh, and Democrats will be able to do some things unilaterally. Uh, they will be able to spend money unilaterally, um, just by the way, as Republicans cut taxes unilaterally when we used the same tool uh, several years ago. Uh, it's kind of a bad approach, but both parties are taking advantage of it. But other matters that are not directly related to the budget currently require a 60-vote majority to pass. And as long as, you know, we have people like Kyrsten Sinema and Joe Manchin that stand up and say they will not vote to eliminate the legislative filibuster, in other words, not vote to eliminate the 60-vote rule, why then we're going to be able to work on a bipartisan basis.
0: And switching gears, what is one thing that all Republicans agree on right now?
1: Well, we all agree that, the, that that President Biden's $1.9 trillion bill is a clunker. And it's not primarily because of all the money it spends, bad as that is. It's that a lot of the money is just simply wasteful. And we could do so much better by focusing on things we really need to deal with, like our infrastructure. But there's $350 billion going to states. The check going to California is $27 billion under that plan. By the way, California has a massive budget surplus. They don't need any more money from the federal government, but we're going to go out and borrow $27 billion from the Chinese to pay California. And this just makes no sense at all. And there's so many measures in the president's bill that are just lousy policy-wise and wasteful. Republicans, I believe, to a person, oppose it.
0: In December, Chuck Todd asked you whether you were comfortable with the current direction of the Republican Party. You said, no, but that over time, you thought that your party would gravitate back to the principles that formed it. Uh, But you said it's, quote, gonna be a while. Since then, January 6th has happened. Your floor statement last week spoke about how vital a culture of truth would be to the survival of the republic, but the majority of people who now identify as Republicans don't seem to be with you. How long are you willing to wait? How far down this current path will you follow this Republican Party before you feel like you'll be forced to leave?
1: Well, there's no question, but I'm in the minority of the Republican Party these days. We've we've become more populist. Uh, And uh, it's hard to root out populism as uh, Italy and and Peru and and uh, Argentina and others have found. Um, uh, You know, populist uh, is is a powerful movement in part, as the name suggests, it's popular. Uh, The problem is it doesn't tend to work over time. And uh, and I think with time, people will recognize that the policies of more traditional conservatism, perhaps updated but more traditional conservative uh, policies are better for the American people. Um, How long it's going to take us to figure that out? I don't know. But I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. Uh, I think the populist uh, movement within my party is uh, uh, is, uh, well and strong and not disappearing. Uh, And uh, I'm afraid that you're going to see more of it before we see less.
0: And you're willing to see it through however long that takes?
1: Well, I, you know, a lot of people talk about, it, well, why doesn't, you know, why don't you start a third party or, you know, th- this is not realistic. Uh, I mean, our system is geared to two parties. Uh, and, and in my view, that the way I can have the most impact on encouraging the principles that I think work for all Americans to actually be part of our uh, governing again, is if I work within the Republican Party uh, and encourage others to join me, if you will, to be a a, a small wing of the Republican Party, but hopefully a wing that gets larger over time uh, and is able to succeed by virtue of the uh, correctness of, of policy.
0: All right, last question. Your Christmas cards are pretty famous, but, uh, and, and I've, you know, you've got, I think what is technically referred to as a zillion grandchildren at this point, but um, many of them are entering high school. And I'm wondering, what is the book, fiction or nonfiction, that they are most likely to get from Grandpa Mitt these days?
1: Well, if I were buying them a book, uh, particularly for those that are of high school age, I, I'd want them to read the book, uh, John Adams by David McCullough. Uh, I think it's important to understand the, uh, the sacrifices that were made to establish uh, our country, uh, to understand the, the, uh, the personal sacrifice that was made uh, by the uh, Adams family, Abigail and John and their their children. Uh, and to understand the, the 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 foundation and the roots of this extraordinary experiment we call America.
0: David French is going to be deeply disappointed that you did not say Lord of the Rings, but I think that was a pretty excellent answer. Thank you, <laughs> uh, Senator, so much for joining us today. I know you've got uh, votes to get back to. We appreciate it. We hope to have you back very soon.
1: Thanks, Sarah. All the best.
2: 18 plus.
0: Time to bring in the guys. First of all, I just want each of your reactions to the bill itself. So the idea of gradually raising the minimum wage over the next 10 years, tying it to inflation every two years after that, and mandating E-Verify for most businesses moving forward. Is this uh, realistic? Is it conservative? Is it interesting? Steve?
3: So I think it's interesting, and um, it's encouraging to to me to see Mitt Romney um, first, first with his um, child welfare policy proposals, now with um, this proposal being somebody who's doing real policy innovation after four plus years of very little policy talk, it's great to be back to policy talk. I think this is exactly the kind of things that uh, a, a healthy and strong conservative movement should be discussing and, and debating. Uh, having said that, I, I bring some skepticism to what he's proposing. I do think that that these are things that are far better left to the states. And while I understand that he's um, cr- created space for states to, to move and, and have some um, and, and make their decisions, uh, kind of on their own terms. Uh, I don't really want the federal government involved in this at all. Uh, I think it's an innovative, uh, from a political perspective, I think it's an innovative, uh, way to tie immigration to, um, to wages in a, in a way that Tom Cotton, who's, who's also, uh, on this proposal has, has been pushing for quite a long time. Um, it's the kind of thing that you can see as there's all of this theoretical talk about how to marry sort of traditional conservatism with, uh, this, this rising center, right populism. These are the kinds of policy proposals I would expect to see more of.
0: David, on uh, the heels of this, Josh Hawley has announced that he would introduce a minimum wage bill uh, that largely is made up by the federal government rather than the employers where they get a tax credit for the difference between their wage and his minimum wage. Um, Are Republicans coming to the minimum wage fight now?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, they're definitely coming to the minimum wage fight now. And the reason why they're coming to the minimum wage fight now is uh, pretty compelling from a political standpoint, and that is increases in the minimum wage seem to be pretty darn popular. And so I think one of the ways to deal with it is how uh, how do you increase a minimum wage uh, while mitigating its negative effects as much as as mitigating the negative effects of the increase as much as possible? And you know one thing that I think that goes that goes to uh, Steve's point, and the the and the question you asked to Steve about the conservatism of the proposal, I would say if you look at the Cotton Romney proposal, what you're looking at is what legislative compromise looks like, um, and what legislative compromise looks like is you you don't necessarily evaluate a bill and say, is this the is this a conservative bill? It's does this bill achieve some conservative objectives in a way that's feasible uh, potentially passable i mean in other words is it a real bill versus just a press release <laughs> and and that's you know that's one what, what's the subject of of part of your discussion uh, with with mitt was look how real is all of this stuff and you know i, I remains to be seen but when you're actually proposing concrete compromise it starts to feel more real because we've talked a lot about press release bills and that are all they're good for is establishing your credibility with this or that constituency dominating some part of an online news cycle for a few hours and then it recedes into oblivion. This seems like something where they're trying to do something real.
0: Couldn't this just be seen as a press release bill, but the constituency is, look, I'm a compromise-y Republican especially for someone like Tom Cotton, who's eyeing 2024?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, you know, I think, is this something that in a reasonable legislature should consider, kind of like, for example, Romney's um, child allowances bill? These are bills that a reasonable legislature should consider, and if they don't, then they're a pretty darn good case in an election that I'm, look, I'm a reasonable uh, politician proposing reasonable, and by the way, Popular um, le- re- legislative reforms, and so I think there there's a difference between that and sort of the classic press release bill that we've seen for you know the last five, six, seven years.
0: Jonah Bernie Sanders wants fifteen dollars an hour. Josh Hawley says he'll do fifteen dollars an hour for a billion dollars in annual revenue, and then you have this compromise. Who's more likely to get to sixty votes? And if the parliamentarian says that. Uh, reconciliation is possible, who's more likely to get to 50?
4: Um, I think you always just have to bet Democrats are going to get closer to 50 than Republicans are in this climate. I do, I do want to touch on a, a couple other quick points on this. Um, one, it is worth pointing out that in the four years of the Trump administration, all the stuff about immigration, all the stuff about the wall, all the stuff about, um, making Mexico pay for it. If you talk to any serious conservative or immigration restrictionist policy intellectuals, the Mark Recorians of the world, and you ask them, which would you rather, a wall or E-Verify? Every single one of them, hands down, would have gone for E-Verify. E-Verify is a serious policy that would have serious consequences. That is what sort of the editorial board of places like National Review have wanted for a very long time. And there was some hope in the early years of the Trump administration that trading that the wall was like a bargaining chip and you give up on the wall and you agree to E-Verify, which sounds so much less scary. Of course, it turned out not to be so and that the wall was the symbolism of the wall was more important than any actual policy. Um, And I think so therefore, it's a little ironic that Mitt Romney, who's considered the wolf's bane of all Trumpism, is the guy who's pushing the best and perhaps most effectively, along with Tom Cotton, to be sure, for E-Verify. but the other thing that interests me, I did not realize about this, about the Holly proposal that you, you mentioned, Sarah. And I think it, it, it illustrates one of the things that has gotten the least amount of discussion. I mean, I'm with Steve. I don't like federally mandated minimum wages. I think it's a bad idea. It's one of the few things, it's one of the many things, but it's near the top of the list of those things that you should not have a one size fits all policy about. Um, but there's also this um, red state, blue state thing going on that people don't talk about very much the, the, a lot of the blue states, California in the lead, probably New York, um, and even Florida, which is not technically, obviously a blue state. A lot of the prosperous states are already moving towards a $15 minimum wage, either organically through market forces or through legislation. California is on schedule to get a $15 minimum wage anyway. And, um, and so what's interesting to me about the Holly proposal is that the way Bernie Sanders wants to do it is it is essentially a tax on small businesses in red states to have a national $15 an hour minimum wage. But if you do it the way Holly wants to do it, um, you are basically amplifying and accelerating the trend of the federal government sending more money to red states than they pay in taxes. Because you are subsidizing, If, if, if you're already at $15 or close to it in blue states, then you are basically subsidizing wages from the federal government for red states. And, um, and that kind of flips the point of it, and to some extent, um, from what I think that so, some of the, sort of the, I mean, Bernie just wants $15, and it's sort of a magic number um, for a lot of these people. But uh, that dynamic, I think Cotton and Holly are among the leading senators who think about these things in red state versus blue state politics the most because they are both more interested in cobbling together a 48% coalition to win through a base strategy. And so how they interpret these granular policy issues through that prism is pretty interesting to me.
0: It seems to me that the E-Verify part, uh, talking about creating a compromise, if you're going to compromise, you have to sort of come up with a bill that sounds reasonable, but then also have things that you're willing to compromise on within the bill. E-Verify seems like one of those things that would never make it into any final proposal. I also think it's interesting just to mention this, Jonah, that you're you're referring to National Review being in favor of E-Verify, but Cato, for instance, quite against it for a few reasons. But one of the most fascinating reasons is because it's useless. So 54%, according to Cato, of undocumented immigrant workers are approved to work by E-Verify because it checks the papers, of course, not the actual worker. So all you need to do is have fraudulent or someone else's papers and you're fine. Um, I, I just, you know. Yeah, there, the, are, there
4: are responses to that. I mean, like the sure. point being that you want strong, uh, the, 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 the phrase is strong E-Verify or real <laughs> E-Verify. Because you're right, there was this this very corrupt, swampy compromise between big employers and the immig- and, and, and Congress to put E-Verify e- in as window dressing, but without any real enforcement mechanisms and all that kind of thing. And look, I, I'm not like that super E-Verify guy. I'm just telling you that like, that in the world of uh, uh, people who take the immigration policy stuff super seriously and want to reduce numbers of illegal immigrants, all the serious people cared more about having a real verifiable form of E-Verify over um, something like the wall. And you know, Cato, I have a lot of friends with Cato, but Cato is also very much an open borders. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean that descriptively. It's sort of an open borders mindset about a lot of these kinds of things.
0: Well, it's to your point about Wall versus E-Verify, I don't think there's any real intellectual discussion about which would be more effective even with the problems with E-Verify today. Uh, it's just a question of how effective can E-Verify be, so I take your point. Uh, all right, the next thing in the Romney conversation was on sort of the brokenness of Congress. I find it interesting because so many senators and congressmen, for that matter, sound incredibly frustrated with being members of that most deliberative body in the world because there's a lot of cable news and not a lot of floor debate. And here you have Mitt Romney kind of running a think tank out of his office. He's now monthly at this point putting out Big interesting policy proposals on topical areas that we have real problems in. And as we've seen, you know, Josh Hawley coming out the next day with his, I mean, this is now part of a big debate over which direction the country goes on minimum wage. But yet, I think everyone on this podcast thinks that the most likely outcome is that nothing happens on minimum wage. I found it fascinating that. Uh, Senator Romney didn't show a lot of frustration, at least with that nearly inevitable feeling outcome. Steve.
3: Yeah. You know, I mean, it it was interesting listening to him talk and 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 um, and respond to your questions. He, He seems to me. Um, and this is impressionistic and obviously there's no way to really, um, to really gauge this in any kind of a a serious way. He seems to me so much more comfortable answering questions and pushing his proposals today than he did as a presidential candidate in 2012. And I say, this as somebody who traveled around the country and, and, uh, and spent a lot of time listening carefully to to what he was saying. Then he has a sort of, um, you know, politics be damned, I'm going to do what the heck I want, um, air about him, which I think is refreshing. There is a growing divide in Congress, I think, between people who are using Congress to be on Fox or MSNBC on the left and people who want to actually do the, the jobs. You know, what Romney's doing on a policy level, and I suspect that this will not be the last policy proposal that we see, sort of innovative policy proposal that we see from Mitt Romney, I suspect, will see a cadence. Maybe it's monthly, maybe it's uh, more frequent. But, you know, Mike Lee had something similar that was um, run by Scott Winship, now a colleague uh, of Jonah's at AEI, who's written for the dispatch. And you you have people in Congress who want to actually do serious policy work and want to address the, the questions, the, the, the most pressing questions facing the country. I think that the, one of the real things about sort of future of the republic questions is, do those people prevail do do these debates ultimately end up mattering or is it the case that it's a different kind of performative legislating or performative discussion so it's not a kind of made for tv outrage bait um play like you know like the matt gates is of the world but it's with you know with with good intentions it becomes a policy discussion that's that kind of takes place on the side because policy doesn't matter as much as it once did. I mean, I'm 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 concerned about that. I'm not ready to say that's where this is going, but um good to have more people doing what Mitt Romney is doing and Mike Lee has done. And look, Marco Rubio is is doing some of the same stuff. I think a lot of what Rubio's talking about and, and proposing now is in conflict, or at least in tension, with most of the things that Marco Rubio argued and, and proposed um, just five six years ago, but good to have these kinds of debates, and I hope that we see more of it. I hope that that Romney's splash into this world convinces more people that it's worth doing.
0: David, you and I agree that Congress is broken. We have talked about various ideas. I uh, raised some of the ideas from the Yuval Levin piece to Senator Romney, and he, you know, non-starter, actually sort of similar to what I told you about <laughs> the Yuval Levin ideas, but I was curious what you thought, um, you know, getting rid of the filibuster, Mitt Romney was not hedging on that. That was both a no and a, and here's, it will be terrible for getting more legislation done that is of the compromisey reasonable nature.
2: Yeah, and Yuval is not for getting rid of the legisla- uh, is not for getting rid of the filibuster. So uh, there's there's uh, unity with Yuval on that point. Um, yeah, and you know some of the some of the reforms that Yuval suggests are would happen at the state level such as ranked choice voting for example and it's already happening at it's already in two states, I believe Maine and Alaska. Um, about as geographically removed as you can get for, uh, except for Hawaii. But um, I do think that there is there is some momentum and energy across the country for innovative policy solutions sort of at at the elite level. And you're going to see some stated you're going to see some state experimentation where you're seeing state experimentation with congressional redistricting. You're seeing some state uh, experimentation with. Um, the with ranked choice voting, for example. And I expect that you'll see more of that, enough to make a real difference. Uh, I'm skeptical, but you know, could be wrong. But I do think that there is, and I have seen it on both sides of the political aisle, there are people who understand that the present situation cannot continue in perpetuity. And that this idea that one side or the other is just gonna go ahead and totally vanquish the other one, and end the logjam and end the impasse. You know, I think that's one of the things that 2020, even though Democrats control each one of the elected branches of government, I think that 2020 dispelled in a way because here was in many ways an ideal opportunity for Democrats to gain control if you looked at the condition of the country at the time of the election. And they have it, but by the barest possible majority. So, uh, I don't know. I'm not as pessimistic as you, Sarah. I think there's energy out there at the state level. And because these elections to um, federal office are really matters of state law, uh, and these districts are matters of state law, I think there's some momentum for change, enough to make a difference. Uh, let's put a pin in this and come back in 10 years.
0: Jonah, he seems to, Senator Romney seems to think that. There could be a pendulum swing, you know, like, sure, we're over here, but maybe it'll swing back over here. He didn't say it that way, but it feels like he's just in a biting his time game on a few topics that we'll get to the next one. Um, do you think that's realistic? I mean, the pendulum does swing on a lot of political things over a decade.
4: No, it does. And, uh, you know, David's right. That which can't continue must stop or whatever. And, you know, these trends can't go on forever but left out of David's pie eyed optimistic take on all of this <laughs> is that they can get worse. No, the, of course the living can envy the dead. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I, I don't, I uh, at the beginning of the Trump era, a friend of mine who I really respect was saying how, look, this is a populist bubble and um, you don't want to, like bubbles in the marketplace you don't want to chase um bubbles because that's how you lose your shirt you want to wait until after the bubble and and bet on the on the flight back to um uh quality you know and you know it's like after you have a big bubble stock market all of a sudden all the money goes back to like staple you know old blue chip kind of companies because they're reliable uh, I think there are limits to the metaphor and I, 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 I no longer fully buy it. I believed it for a long time. Look, part of the reason we started the dispatch was a bet on the idea that there'd be a flight to quality. But if you look at the, what has happened to say Ron Johnson in those hearings this week, um, where he is like tripling down on, on conspiracy theory stuff and how, uh, Matt Gates is now doing workshops on how to talk about how Dominion stole the election. Um, and uh, in any contest between those forces and Mitt Romney, I will choose Mitt Romney every single time. Um, you know, Mitt Romney is not, uh, I don't think anybody would mistake Mitt Romney for a, a rock star like firebrand who really gets people gets their blood going, but that's not what I want from a politician to begin with. Um, But I think he's got a long slog ahead of him. And, uh, you know, I I root for him and I root for the people like him. And I think he's doing this the right way. I think that some of the policy churn that Steve is talking about, while better than just naked, jingoist, nativist jackassery, um, (laughs) is not not necessarily um, as high-minded as some of us would like. To think it is because a lot of this stuff is premised on this idea of of you can win over the populace by coming up with populist public policy proposals and a I think that's flawed and untrue politically but B it gives proofs to the fact that once you get into that mode um, you get into a bidding war with Democrats about who can use the government and spend the most money to appease constituencies in your coalition and Republicans will never win that race fully. And even if they did, they're betting on a shrinking demographic to do it.
3: But I totally agree with you. I, I think that's a fair point. And I think some of them aren't, are, are more political. Some of the pro- policy proposals are more political at this point than they are driven by, um, you know, sort of a, a, an, an abiding, uh, need for good policy. That to me doesn't, um, negate their importance. It's better to be debating this kind of stuff and to to have people like you making the argument that you're making that, hey, we're never gonna conservatives are never gonna outbid Democrats if it's just about giving stuff away or creating bigger government programs. It's far, far better in my view, to be debating that than to be debating whether the horde of QAnon Trump supporter people assaulted the Capitol were actually the people who assaulted the Capitol or whether it was some <laughs> fantasy version of that that Ron Johnson is is conjuring or, you know, debating basics of election outcomes, you know, stuff that's made up versus stuff that's real.
0: Jonah, the big question for Mitt Romney, of course, is that after the election, you know, he saw the Republican Party was 100 yards away from where he was and he was like, well you know, they're there now, but I think they'll, they'll swing back eventually. It may take a while. And then January 6th happens. And then a second impeachment happens. The Republican Party is further from Mitt Romney, but probably at least 250 yards from Mitt Romney now compared to where they were on November 8th or December 1st. Um, and yet Mitt Romney sounds like he wants to stick it out with the Republican Party and fascinatingly thinks that there's no point In a third party. But he wouldn't really take the bait on the question, you know, let's say the Republican Party puts in the platform that they are for white supremacy. Like, then would you leave the party? Now, (laughs) he's a clever politician. He's not going to take my uh, easily dodged bait. Um, But I'm curious what you thought of his answer, whether you think there is a line or whether, you know, Mitt Romney's not 40 years old, whether he's just decided that he's a Republican lifer and he will try to stand out there. Five hundred yards away, if he has to, a mile away, if he has to, saying, "Come back over here."
4: Yeah, I mean, I, look, I mean, first of all, you know, kudos to 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 Mitt for keeping the nudity tasteful and integral to the plot, and <laughs> um, it was a very adult, sober, uh, disciplined interview that he gave with you, right. and um, uh, and I think that. Let's put it this way, even if he were thinking of some grand, uh, you know, St. Saint, Saint Valentine's Day massacre, Michael Corleone at his kid's baptism, where he takes out all of his enemies at once kind of thing, he wouldn't tell you at this stage trying to move a bill about the minimum wage. And he is, if, he is nothing if not disciplined. And um it he, he's always gonna remind me there was a great line about George H.W. Bush where they interviewed his um coach, his baseball coach from Yale. And they said, what kind of player was he? And he said, and the coach said, Bush was the kind of player who if you told him to bunt, he bunted. <laughs> and um and I think that's <laughs> that's sort of like Mitt Romney in a lot of it. And I say this with love. I mean, I, I am a fan of Mitt Romney, but I, I think that. He's got no choice at this stage. If he wants to be relevant and do good things in the Senate, he's got to talk this way, whether he believes it or not. Now, I suspect he actually believes it, which makes it more interesting or less interesting, depending on your perspective. But I think that he um, he, is, he is right in, to a certain extent that a third party thing right now really doesn't make a, a hell of a lot of sense. And... And to be honest, third party things never really make a lot of sense unless you see them deliberately as poison pills to destroy a party. And so he's not giving up on the Republican Party yet. My hunch is if they did put in the platform they believe in white supremacy, he'd get out. Because I think he's an honorable and decent man before he's a politician or a Republican. But um, I I don't know that the GOP, I don't know if the GOP is gonna put that in the platform till at least 2028. So, you know, he may be out of the Senate by then.
0: (laughs) Uh, David, he said he thought he could do more good within the Republican Party than outside of it. And he's not going to become a Democrat. You buy it?
2: For now. For now. I mean, I, you know, a lot of the conversation about the future, I've just got to say, I I, w- I was having a, a conversation with somebody, longtime GOP guy um, on Monday, and they said, what do you think the future is? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I I really don't know how much of a hold the Gates style uh, and Ron Johnson conspiracy theorizing uh, I don't know how much of a of an enduring hold that will have. I do I, you know I do know right now that's the biggest part of the party. I know that I know that you know if you're going to have I think there's two point zero zero one factions. There's the Trump Trump populist Trump Trump. Election stolen Trump, and that's the largest. And then there's the, hey, I stood with Trump against all of the, you know, all of his enemies, but let's not do that again, and that's smaller. And then there's the point zero zero one, which is, you know, the the Mitt wing of the party. And I can totally see if you're Mitt and you have been a governor, you have been a senator, you've been the GOP nominee for president of the United States, that you would have a position that says, Hey, you leave, you know? I mean, I'm not the one who's who's departing from the historical norms of this party. Why don't you go somewhere? Why don't you form a third party, other folks? But look, I mean, the bottom line is I think we we just have to wait and see how this plays out. I mean, it's, you know, in news cycle terms, it's an eternity between now and 2022. And what's the world going to look like when the vaccine is widely distributed when people are back in stadiums and arenas, um, the economy has bounced back from the pandemic effects. Is there going to be as much paranoia? Is there going to be as much anger? Is there going to be as much rage um, sort of underlying the American body politic? I don't know. I don't know. And I think a lot of people are sort of projecting out this moment for the next year to two years. That's just a guess. They're just guessing.
0: Stephen another interview that Senator Romney gave yesterday. He said that if Donald Trump ran for the Republican nomination, he believed that he would win the Republican nomination. So I wonder if he'll split that bet that I've made with you, you know, take some of the heat off me here. But um he also said that he wouldn't vote for him. Uh, how <laughs> he can say he's still a Republican at some point, but if he's not voting for the Republican nominee potentially, is he a Republican? Are people just going to yeah, be like, yeah, that R means something?
3: No, yeah. I, I mean, I th- I think he is. He made very clear. I thought it was, his answer was very interesting to, to your question. Um, and, and it was, you know, in line with, we, we had a, a long piece from Declan Garvey last week um, speaking to people like Pat Toomey and, and Ben Sass.
0: Such a good others. piece. We need to put yeah, it in the show notes. Find piece. it in the show notes, folks. It was
3: 75,000 so words long. <laughs> um, it was so good, though. <laughs> could have been published as a book. You know, it really was a terrific, terrific piece. And and Romney, you know, basically made the same points that that these other prominent Republicans, Larry Hogan included. He said, Look, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, it's basically what what David is saying. I'm not going anywhere. I've been a Republican for longer than a lot of these people. I believe in the things that the Republican Party has long stood for. So no, I'm not going to just bail now. I'd rather have this fight. Look, I think I think, and I I don't. I think David, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I, I'm a little bit less fatalistic about about this than it sounds like you might be you know um there's a long time this stuff needs to play out. I think what we're actually seeing is a small number of Republicans, and I will concede it's a very small number of Republicans who who are doing more than that. They're not sort of taking a passive approach. they are saying, no, like this is. Crazy what we're seeing happening. Mitt Romney is chief among them. I think he, you know, he entered a, a statement for the record about impeachment that was incredibly strong and a a, a, a real, uh, I think, uh, re- appropriate response to the people who have excused the president on January sixth and and added to the the lies about the election. You've seen Ben Sass come out very forcefully and take on the Nebraska Republican party when they sought to censure him. Uh, you saw Fred Upton, a Republican from, from Michigan respond to efforts from a local Republican, uh, County party there to censure him for, um, you know, opposing Marjorie Taylor green, um, you know, and, 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 s- his statement was in effect, are you serious? This is crazy. You're asking me to embrace crazy and I won't do it. And then you saw Liz Cheney uh, gave a speech Tuesday at the, the Reagan Institute in which she both laid out a path for sort of a hawkish Republican foreign policy future, but also made very clear like, she's not stepping aside this is she's not gonna not fight this stuff so you're finally seeing a point at which there is this willingness to fight now it may just be that the that the numbers are overwhelming and and donald trump is able to to command his populist army to to crush uh the spirits of these people but we'll see i mean trump is the two times donald trump has really engaged publicly since leaving office have been to comment on Tiger Woods car accident and Rush Limbaugh's passing, which has a very Sarah Palin esque feel to it in that he's not, he's not jumping in on the policy stuff. He's jumping no. in on the to personality Mitch stuff. McConnell and to, and to put out a statement insulting Mitch McConnell and vowing revenge. So <laughs> it, this is Trump re- reverting to form. And at a certain point, if he's not really weighing in on anything other than getting back at the people he doesn't like and pop culture stuff, uh, that I'm,
2: I'm skeptical about whether that has the kind of staying power that other people. Steve, think I'm not saying be passive. I'm saying, or that anyone should be passive. I'm just not willing to make a prediction about who wins yet. Um, that, you know, that's, that's probably whole...
3: wise for all of us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm all in support of engaging directly. And I've also long said on, on this podcast that The more passive Trump is down in Mar-a-Lago and the less frequently he jumps in, the worse it is for his cause. He's not going to be able to coast off of the election contest and the presidency forever. And then a lot of the other people who are trying to assume the mantle, they're just not him. So that's one of the reasons why I'm not willing to make a prediction. A lot of people are saying this is Trump's party now, Trump's party now, Trump's party now. My position is Trump has to work to keep it his party. That it just won't happen by inertia. And I'm not convinced he's going to do that. It's one of the reasons why I'm not convinced that we can
4: project out what the GOP is going to look like. One small point on that. It's also worth noting that while lots of smart, sophisticated Republicans have sold out or played along or have stayed silent or been complicit, yada, 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 you know, Scalise and McCarthy and all those people, the most vocal, serious, and committed. Trumpists in Congress. I'm not talking about normal Americans or anything like that. Um, But the most committed Trumpists in Congress are, with a very few exceptions, what social scientists call morons. And um, we have Bobbert, Gates, and those people. And if they are the ones flying the flag for Trumpism for the next four years on national media... I have a very hard time believing that it attracts more people than it subtracts from the Republican coalition. And it will actually give a lot of other mainstream Republicans some space to distance themselves from pure Trumpism, which is exactly what Trump is going to demand from elected officials. And that could, that could, as, as Lenin, as I believe it was Lenin, but maybe it was Dick Van Patten said, that could heighten the contradictions.
0: All right, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Next time, we'll have a poll of the Romney grandchildren to see how many of them have picked up their copy of McCullough's John Adams, or how many are instead watching Netflix.
4: There are enough of them that you could actually have a margin of error, (laughs) which is really impressive.
0: Uh, Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this interview and our discussion after it. Subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And don't worry, We'll be back with the guys in our regular roundtable tomorrow.